DJ. Can you uh, bring Johnny's voice and guitar down and... Yeah. morning. It's good to see you all this morning, and uh, we are getting close to the end of our series, Faith and Doubt. We've been going through the life of Abraham, and, and so we're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 23 this morning, and so if you have a Bible, open up there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to download one of the free Bible apps on, uh, your, in your app store or whatever, whatever you have on your phone and follow along. Um, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's been an awesome time going through Abraham. We got a, a little bit left, um, but we're coming close to the end this morning. And uh, as we do that, I just want to pause for a minute and pray before we dig into God's word this morning. Dear God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Abraham. Thank you for Sarah. Thank you for, for Isaac. Thank you for this, the, the record that we have of your servant and, and how he was in relationship with you, both of the faith that he had and the doubts at times. Uh, but Lord, thank you that we can look and see how you related to him, how he related to you. And Lord, as we do that once again this morning, I pray that your spirit would enable our minds to understand well what you would have for, the, for us this morning and enable our hearts to embrace that message and to apply it to our lives. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Talk about different stages in life, right? We're celebrating graduates this morning. And, you know, poor Johnny, he's in every stage at the same time. You know, like he, he, he's, he's, got, he's got the little one and, and the older kids, the married kids. He's got everything. Uh, poor guy. He doesn't even, he's, so, he's just a confused guy. He doesn't know what stage he's in. So you can console him later. Um, but, but <laughs> and they're all girls, that's right. And, you know, so anyways, uh, uh, but for, the, for most of us, though, we're in a stage of life, right? Some of us are, are maybe uh, young. Uh, some of us are, are, are looking forward to, to marriage someday. Some of us uh, are married but no kids. Some of us have young kids, older kids. Uh, you know, you graduate or you, you, you celebrate of graduating from high school, and the next thing you know, they're getting married. Like, that's real life for me. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a crazy life we live, and we go through these different stages. But there, I ran across this story uh, about a couple, and uh, and they were married on May thirteenth in nineteen twenty four. That's during the one of my favorite pre- presidents of all time, Calvin Coolidge. Not that I remember him, but I've read about him, right? Which is probably the case for most of us. But they got married in nineteen twenty four, and um, and and her, their names are Herbert and Zelmira Fisher, and they were married for eighty eight years. 88 years before Herbert passed away at the age of 105, right? Is that amazing? Uh, And Zelmira, his wife, would pass away a few years later at 105. And so they were were married. Oh, wow, we're already putting the tweets up there. They were married for a long time. Uh, uh, But in 2010, they took to Twitter, right? 
And they were going to answer uh, people's questions about relationships and marriage and all, all of those kinds of things. And, 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 the, and the, one of the questions they got was this. What's the one thing you have in common that transcends everything else? And this is, this is what they tweeted back uh, in their answer. They said this. We are both Christians and believe in God. Marriage is a commitment to the Lord. We pray with and for each other every day. If you're married... And you want to be married for a long time. I'm not going to say 88 years, because let's just be honest. Most of us aren't going to get there, right? But if you want to be married a long time, what a great piece of advice. As a matter of fact, you can, I followed them on Twitter. I looked up their account. You can go back and you can read through all these questions. There's some really great marriage advice on there from this couple who was married for 88 years. Most of us are just hoping to be alive that long. I mean, they, they were married that long. So, so it's, it's, but they were, they took to Twitter and they answered these questions and it was really amazing advice. This couple had seen everything. I mean, you think about it. They were, they were married in 1924. That means they saw the Great Depression. They saw World War II. They saw the Vietnam War. They saw the Civil Rights Movement. They saw the Twin Towers fall. They saw, you know, they saw the wars in, in, in the Middle East that we, we engaged in. They have seen so much in their lives. And you can imagine over 88 years of marriage that it's not just what they saw out there, but it's what they saw in their own home. I mean, you cannot tell me that you can be married for 88 years and not, ex- not experience significant loss at times and pain and hurt and confusion, communication problems, failing one another, having to forgive one another, right? I mean, they have had to go through amazing things throughout those 88 years of marriage. But Abraham and Sarah married a long time, too. As a matter of fact, they were probably... It's likely that they were married longer than this couple. They were, if Abraham and Sarah got married at the typical, uh, typical age for Sarah, when she was maybe 15-ish, they might have been married 112 years. Can you imagine that? 112 years of marriage, being together, and all of the things that they saw. They saw amazing, amazing things. And you think about what they had been through. God called them out of the land of Ur, right, to this place where, where, where they, that God was going to show them. They didn't even really recognize or know exactly where they were going, but God was going to show them. And Sarah followed Abraham, Abram at the time, Sarai and Abram, as they went to the land that God would show them. And they were, they were sojourners. They were wanderers. They didn't, they were, they didn't have a home per se, and God led them to this place, and then they fled, they experienced famine, and they went down to Egypt, and, and traveled more than people would ever imagine traveling at that time in some ways, and they would come back, and they saw their nephew get kidnapped, and then Abram, Abraham would go to war to, to, to rescue Lot, and, and all of these things along the way that they had experienced, and, and at times, you know, they went through some really tough times, right, and and, and they experienced unfaithfulness in their marriage and, and, and uh, an, an illegitimate child and, and all of these things that they had gone through in these 112 years of marriage. And it must have been unbelievable. And how unbelievable would it be to sit down with them and to hear, to be able to have a Twitter feed and to say, how did you guys do it? How did you forgive one another? How did you stand by one another? And yet, marriage is such a significant thing. We make significant vows when we get married. Married, We say things like, in, in sickness and in health, we're going to you know, be with each other until death do us part. 
whether we're rich or whether we're poor, and they had experienced both of those things. You know, we, we make all these commitments and, and to, to stick by one another, this covenantal agreement that we enter into with one another. And Abraham and Sarah entered into that agreement. But their marriage was going to end. It was going to end in death, in the death of Sarah. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in Genesis chapter 23. And the first couple verses of Genesis 23 say this, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. You know, I haven't lost a wife. My, my wife's right there, thank goodness. But some of you have. And you know the hurt and the sorrow that comes along with that. You've, many of us, most of us probably have lost loved ones, people that we were close to. You know, I remember uh, the last time that I was with my grandma. My grandma was a significant figure in my life, and, and we, knew, we knew she was going to pass away. And so I flew down to Florida just, what is this, like a few years ago? Now is it two, three, four? It's, no. My wife says it was six years ago. Wow, time goes by fast, right? I flew down to Florida to see her one last time. And I remember that moment walking, you know, I, and I've got a picture, and we, we, we embraced each other, and I prayed for her, and, and she prayed for me, and we spent this time together. And I remember walking out that door knowing that that was going to be the last time I would ever see my grandma. And I, I walked outside. I'm going to break down. I walked outside my aunt's house. And I just stood out outside the house just for a few minutes as tears began to go down my face. So I can only imagine what it must be like for Abraham as he mourned the loss of his wife, his wife of 112 years. They had experienced everything together. He had experienced the forgiveness that she granted him. He had experienced the support that she gave him. He had experienced all these trials and all these difficulties in life. They had experienced all these things together. And now she was gone. And Abraham begins to mourn. It's amazing because you go back all the way to Genesis chapter 12 and you remember the call of God on Abraham's, on Abraham's life. That he was going to bless him. He was going to make him into a nation, right? He was going to give him land. And God said, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless others, so that you can be a blessing to all these people, of the, the nations, the families of the earth. That's why I'm doing this for you. And so Abraham receives this promise, and he, and he follows through in faith, and he goes to this new land. But it wasn't just a call to Abraham. It was a call to Sarah, too. God never just calls a husband. And he never just calls a wife. If there is a husband and wife, he calls them together. I mean, you think about this, and, those, and though as, as Scripture reflects it and records the story, you know, God's call was directed at Abraham, but in effect it was to his wife. They both went to the land of promise. They both worshipped God in that land as they traveled around and God showed them the land, right? God refused to fulfill his promise through Hagar and Ishmael. He was only going to fulfill it through Sarah. Because she was the one who was called as well, not Hagar and Ishmael. God miraculously provided Isaac even when Sarah, Sarah was old. As a matter of fact, it was a humorous thing because you remember that she laughed. Abraham laughed. And guess what? Isaac's name means laugh, right? And so, so there's this whole idea. It was, 
Don't tell me God does not have a sense of humor when he's literally naming people laugh, right? And so, but it, it, was, it was humorous, but it was also miraculous. It was God's providence to them in fulfilling his promise. And Isaac became the fulfillment of his promise in the flesh. Even, her, even in her death, Sarah is part of a down payment on the promised land. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But here's what I want us to stop and to think about this morning because we, we sometimes make all these assumptions and this is a bad assumption to make, especially given our current cultural context. God designed marriage for a specific reason. Marriage has always been the foundation of society. It is a mini society within society, right? It's a mini culture within culture. It is, it is the context in which God not only designed for, for two people to come together in a covenantal relationship that reflects the covenantal relationship between him and his people, but it is also one of the ways in which God designed us so that we could pass on the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of God's love for humanity and his work within humanity. Over and over we see in places like Deuteronomy 6 where where it says, pass this on to your children and there is this relationship of parents and children and passing on what what we know of God, what we know of his love for us, what we know of his mercy and his grace and his kindness to our children so that they can be raised in that, so that they can be lifted up in that. And then one day they graduate from high school and then they graduate from college, right? And then they, and then they go off into the world to have careers or ministries or whatever. And I pray all of the time for my children that they won't just have good careers with nice white picket fences and a dog and a couple kids, but that they will serve Jesus, that they will be a light unto the world. And the family is the structure, at least one of the structures, the church being the other, which God has designed to carry that light into the world. Because marriage is a faith journey. Marriage is a faith journey. It's not something you embark on by yourselves. It's not something you do as, uh, uh, by yourself if you're married. Once you get married, right, you, you don't, you don't kind of have a faith journey without your spouse. And that's not how God designed it. Sometimes that happens, right? We, we, we marry somebody and, and, and they're not a believer. Or maybe we were both unbelievers and then one, one person becomes a, a, a believer. They put their faith and trust in Christ. And then, and then there, is, there is something that isn't quite how God designed it. And that can be really difficult. And as a matter of fact, we see instruction in scripture about those kinds of relationships in, in places like Peter. But... That's not God's ideal. It's not the way he designed it to be ideally. Ideally, he designed it so that a husband and a wife would be together and that they would grow in their faith together, that they would encourage one another, that they would lift one another up. And we see this in the marriage of, of Abraham and Sarah. I mean, you begin to think about it, and there was all kinds of reasons why their marriage shouldn't have lasted. <laughs> I mean, think about this for a minute. I mean, one of the, one of the first things that Abraham does is he takes her far away from home, away from everything she ever knew. I mean, talk about a recipe for, for you know, for, for not, the things not going well, that was it, right? And not only that, but along the way, like, she made some pretty bad decisions too, right? It was her idea of, hey, why don't you sleep with my servant Hagar? Let's, so God can fulfill the promise that way. And, and of course, Abraham, and you can go back and listen to that message. We talked about that. Abraham went along with it, being the great leader that he was. I say that tongue-in-cheek facetiously just in case you're wondering. 
I mean, talk about a recipe for divorce. That was it. That was it, right? And then Abraham has this idea that I'm going to go and sacrifice the one son we had. I know, I know God told him to do it, and you can go back and listen to last week's message, but I'm just saying, that doesn't, that's not the kind of thing you go, hey, honey, I'm going to go sacrifice the kid. See you later. Be back in a few days, right? Like that doesn't, How does that conversation happen? And if he didn't tell her ahead of time, which maybe he didn't, that might not have been the worst idea in, in a sense, you know? But then how do you come back from the mountain and go, by the way, honey, you know, we went on this camping trip and uh, we took an altar and I was going to sacrifice our son, but God provided us something else. I mean, well, how does that conversation go? But through the midst of all of it, through the midst of all of it, they were on this faith journey together. And in the end, in the end, what we find is that they had grown together, that they had, they had encouraged one another, that they had lifted each other up, that they had become the famous Abraham of faith that Hebrews 11 talks about. He had to become that. It wasn't, he wasn't born that. He had to become that. And Sarah was with him on that journey. And they were on that journey together. Marriage is a faith journey. More significantly than that all of that is the faith journey that they would go on together, right? Everything that they would go on together. Even in Ephesians 5, Paul ta- the Apostle Paul talks about this, right? It's, it's, he, there's these different roles that, that it talks about in, in Ephesians 5, right? Where between men and women. And one of the things, and one of the things that I think weighs on me the most as a husband and as a father is this, that in, in Ephesians 5 and 6, there is this, this weight that is on my shoulders because it talks about presenting my wife before God as holy, and that weighs on me significantly. That's part of my role, and my children as well. That's, that's our role as men, as husbands. And, and, and Paul talks about this, and that's what Jesus does with the church, right? There is a comparison between the husband and the wife. Even in the, in the marriage ceremony itself, there's all kinds of symbolism related to Jesus and the church. And, you know, when a bride comes down wearing a white dress and she's being presented what? Holy. She's being presented pure. And we see that symbolism. That's what Jesus does for the church, for his bride. He presents her holy before God. There is this idea that marriage and the covenant between, between God and his church, they're very similar in some respects. And that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5. Marriage is a journey of mutual sacrifice. And you again go to Ephesians 5, chapter, or verse 21, and it says, submit to one another. And then it goes on to talk about how that looks in a marriage. How, how does the husband submit to the wife and how does the wife submit to the husband? They submit in different ways, but they both submit. They both sacrifice, if you will. See, Christianity was born in sacrifice. It has been sacrificed since the beginning that was required. M- marriage is a journey of mutual sacrifice. Here's what I see so much in our culture today and attitudes towards marriage. Marriage is like a convenience. As a matter of fact, a lot of times people approach it this way. And I had a conversation with somebody not that long ago who is, I, I don't believe they're 
they, they have a relationship with Jesus, but they have opinions about marriage. And we were talking about this and, 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 and they just told me, it, you know, the way they described it was marriage was about, my, about fulfilling my needs and my happiness. In other words, if I am happy in marriage, then, then fine. But, and, and this person actually didn't really believe in marriage. You know, she was kind of like, well, I, I just don't believe in marriage. What do you, you, what do you need a piece of paper for? No, you misunderstand the whole concept if you think it's just about an emotional love towards another person. If you think that's what marriage is, it's not. Now, I'm not saying there's not emotional love, that you don't feel emotions towards one another. Hopefully you do, but sometimes it's anger, I'm just telling you. Right? Now, sometimes it's, 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 it's other things, right? It can be passion, it can be uh, empathy, it can be joy that you experience together. You can mourn together, you can feel all these things. And, and marriage is about going through those things together. It's a journey together. But here is the thing. If you look at your marriage and if you come here this morning and maybe your marriage is on the rocks, maybe, maybe it's, it, it's been rough, it's been difficult, and you're looking at it and you're going, I just don't know. There's no way this can be redeemed. Can I just tell you something? The first question you need to stop asking is if you are happy. Stop asking it. That's the wrong question. If you're trying to measure the health of your marriage, you don't go, am I happy? And if you're not happy, then you go, oh, well, I think well, I'll just get divorced. That's not how it works. That's not what marriage is about. You, you were confused, and I'm sorry if our culture has misled you or somebody told you something that led you down a road that was different from, from, from what I'm about to tell you, but I'm just going to tell you they were wrong, okay? The Bible doesn't say, hey, get married so that you'll be happy all the moments of the rest of your life. I have yet to find that verse. I can't find it. But you know what it does say? It says submit to one another. You know what it does say? It says sacrifice for one another. You know what it does say? You've got to leave something and cleave to something else. You've got to leave a mother and a father and cleave to a, to a husband or a wife, right? There, there is a, a coming together, a uniting together. You know, what, you know what the Bible promises us? That there will be affliction in all of life, that there will be difficulties and hardships, that you're going to face those things. And can I just tell you something? It's not so that you'll be happy. As a matter of fact, Jesus doesn't come and say, oh, I really hope that you'll be happy. God comes and says, I hope that you'll flourish, right? We see that in the Beatitudes, this idea of flourishing. He wants you to flourish, but guess what we have to go through? And Romans 5 talks about this, and it talks about this in James 1, right? We have to go through hardship and affliction, and those things bring about character in our lives. And that's what God's concerned about. You want to know if you're in a healthy marriage? Ask this question. Are we sacrificing for one another? Because the answer to that question will tell you if you're in a healthy marriage. You want to know if you're a good husband or if you're a good wife? Ask yourself this question. How am I sacrificing for my spouse? What am I giving up? How am I lifting them up? How am I serving them? How am I honoring them? How am I cherishing my wife? How am I respecting my husband? Because if you can't answer those questions or the answer is I'm not, then guess what? The fix starts with the person who looks at you in the face every morning when you get up to brush your teeth in the mirror. That's where it starts. And it starts in getting your relationship with Jesus right and then realizing that he sacrificed for you and he called you to sacrifice for your spouse. That's a healthy marriage. Marriage is a faith journey together. How are you praying for one another? You know, I, I can't help but think about it. And, you know, Herbert and Zelmira Fisher, 
you know, 88 years married. And what was the secret? That they believed in God, they were Christians, and that they prayed with and for one another. That was their secret. If you're angry with your spouse, try this, pray for them. It's really, really difficult, I've found, to be angry at my wife when I'm praying for her. Now, it's not impossible, it happens, but usually it begins to fade, right? Because as I pray, as I go before God, I often realize that I might have been being a jerk. (sighs) And now I got to fix that. Now I got to go apologize. Now I got to make things right. And even if I wasn't being a jerk, what it reminds me is that I have been forgiven much because I'm standing before Jesus who has forgiven me much. And all of a sudden, even if I am the one being wronged, I realize that I need to forgive my wife because what she has done to me isn't nearly close to what I have done to God. And yet he forgave me. Pray for one another. Take the advice of Herbert and Zelmira Fisher. Abraham lost the love of his life. The woman he had journeyed through life with for over a hundred years. And he was mourning his loss, but he found himself a wanderer, a sojourner in a foreign land. No place to bury his wife. He's in a place, he doesn't own any property, he just camps. I don't know how that works exactly. <laughs> it's hard to imagine that. But this is, what, this is where Abraham and Sarah were. They were in a, in a land that God had promised them, but had not given them as of yet. And it, and it wasn't theirs. They were sojourners, right? They were wanderers. They, they were Bedouins, right? They, they were just wandering about, kind of doing their thing. But they had developed a reputation. Everybody knew who Abraham was. They knew about him rescuing Lot. They knew about him taking on those kings. And they, and, and they knew about all these things. And he was well respected. But he had lost the love of his life, who he had been married to for over 100 years and now he's going what am I going to do I need to find a place to bury her and so he begins to make arrangements in, in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 23 and he says this then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites he said I am a foreigner and a stranger among you sell me some property for a burial site so I can bury my dead the text goes on, right? And, he, and it records this, this moment when Abraham is going before them and he's saying, look, I need to bury my wife. I need some property. And he begins to have a discussion in the way that they would have a discussion, a negotiation about, about buying some property. And they come and, they, and, and, and one, of, one of the Hittites says, Abraham, don't worry about it. You can just bury her in that cave that you want. It's okay. It's my property. You can just bury her. I'll give it to you, right? And we read that and we think, oh, what a generous person. But there's some things going on behind the scenes on a cultural level that that you might not exactly get it wasn't exactly a free gift it was more like you can you can have it but it's not really yours you can bury you can bury sarah there but it's more like renting it even though it's even though it's free right and so it wouldn't be his property. And so he's, and he basically says, no, 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 no. I know you're being generous, right? And we have this kind of language where it sounds like they're being generous. But what's going on behind the scenes is a negotiation because Abraham wants to own the land. He wants to own it, right? He's in Canaan. He's in, he's in the land of God's promise. And so he begins to negotiate and, and even though it appears it's, it's being free, it's free, it's not exactly true. And what he ends up doing is he says, no, I insist, I'm going to pay it, pay not only for the cave that was going to be kind of given to him to bury Sarah in, but I want to have the whole field where the cave is part of it. And so I want to buy the whole thing. And so he pays this price for it. And, and can I just tell you, it's a lot. It's way above market value. 
I know the text makes it sound like it's market value, but based on other records that we have, it's way above market value. It's probably three to four times market value, and Abraham pays the price. He buys the land, even though it seems to be way above market value. And this would be the cave where not only Sarah would be buried, but later Abraham, and later Isaac, and later others. As a matter of fact, we know where this is today. If you go to Israel and you go to Hebron, you can go and you can visit this place where they were buried. And you can see this place. But, but you begin to think about why is Abraham insisting on paying for this when they said, no, you can just bury your wife there. Just go ahead. Why would you insist on paying this? But Abraham knew the promises of God. And what were the promises? I'm going to bless you to be a blessing, right? I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to make you into a great nation through this child. Now, he'd, he'd experienced the answer to some of that. He'd been blessed, certainly. But he'd also re- received a child, a miraculous child, even in, in their old age. And, and so God had answered that. It was through Isaac that his promise was going to be fulfilled. So he'd answered that piece of it. But there was this land piece. There was this land piece, and that hadn't really been answered yet. You know, God hadn't given him the land. He had showed him the land, but he hadn't given it to him. It wasn't his. He didn't own it, right? And Abraham had learned some lessons throughout his life because they kept trying to shortcut how this was all going to work out, right? They kept trying to figure out how God's promises were going to be fulfilled, and they came up with other plans. God said, no, I'm not doing that. God's got a plan, and Abraham realized throughout his life and his life experiences that God would fulfill his promises according to his time. Maybe that, that, that verse in Peter, right, that where it talks about, at, you know, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day to God, that had finally kind of sunk in that idea. Of course, Peter hadn't been written, but, but it sunk into Abraham, that concept that, that God's timeline and our timeline, they don't always match. And Abraham comes to the end of the end of his life, and he goes, God hasn't given me this land. It's probably not coming. My wife has now passed away. I'm not exactly a spring chicken. I'm kind of old. I'm probably going to pass away at some point. I don't see how this is all going to work. But I need to bury my wife. And so what he does is this. He makes a down payment on the promise by buying the land to bury his wife. And so he insists on the purchase of the land and he buys it for much more than market value. But he's not buying land. He's making a down payment on the promises of God. See, the reality is this. Our lives and marriages are to be lived on mission beyond our life. And that's what Abraham was doing. He was on mission from God to see God's promises fulfilled. And he knew it wouldn't be during his lifetime. And so he makes a down payment on the promise, knowing that God will fulfill his promise when that time comes to full. My question for you is this. Are you living your life? Are you together in your marriage? Are you on mission from God? Can I just tell you something? One of the biggest blessings in my marriage with my wife is this, that from the very beginning of our relationship, we were on mission. We've just always been on mission. I mean, we, we literally met in, like, line to get our pictures taken in, as freshmen at Oak Hills Bible College in northern Minnesota, a grand total of 110 students at the time, you know? Small, tiny little Bible college, and she's this bubbly thing that was just like, you know, I mean, you've met my wife, right? It's, I mean, she, she walks into the fellowship hall, and all of a sudden the, whole, the lights just turn on. It's, 
You know, the, the energy level goes up, right? And all of a sudden, everybody's smiling because she's got this big smiley, you know, <laughs> smile. It's really annoying sometimes, you know what I'm saying? Like, like when we wake up in the morning, she's learned not to talk to Grumpy, right? Like, it's, <laughs> I wake up in the morning, and I'm like, don't. <laughs> like, I wake up mad at the world. That's my, that's my life, right? God knew I needed a little cheer in my life, but she drove me crazy at first, but God knew I needed that, and, and, and God gave me that, right? And so, and so she, changes, she changes the room when she walks in the room, and if you know my wife well, you know this is true about her. That's just her personality, and I'm so thankful for that because I always tell people, you know, I, I got, God created me to stir the pot and her to make peace, right? Like, that's kind of how we approach ministry, but... But she does, right? And, and, but we were on mission together because one of the first things you had to do at Oak Hills Bible College is this. You had to find a place where you're going to do ministry at a church. And so we found this little church in this rural area. I mean, everything's rural in northern Minnesota. But, you know, it's more rural than Bemidji. Burmidji, as some people call it, right? Like where Oak Hills Bible College is. And, and so, so even more, it was like 45 minutes. Was that about how far it was away? 45 minutes away from Bemidji. And, and, uh, and we, would, we would drive there and we, would, we ran the youth group. I was 17 years old. I graduated from high school a little bit young, started college a little bit young. And so, and I was 17 years old and there were 18 year old kids in the youth group. It was kind of funny, right? And I'm your leader. <laughs> that church was crazy. <laughs> They even paid us, like, enough to put gas in the car, I think, is about it. But, but that was, that was our, our introduction to each other was, was that because I was like, I want to do youth ministry. They want somebody to run their youth ministry. I'll do it. You know, I was, I was too dumb to know what I didn't, you know, know what I didn't know, right? And I'm like, I'll just do it. I've I'm always been a jump, jump first and check to see if there's water in the pool on your way down. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's always kind of been my personality. And, um, and, and, so, I, and so she's like, well... And I was, I was like, well, there should, I should probably do this with, you know, there should probably be a female leader and, and, and stuff. And so there's just a female leader and a male leader. And, and she was looking for ministry. And so she's like, I'll do it with you. And I'm like, okay, what's your name again? You know, I mean, that's kind of how our relationship started. We, we've always been on mission together. It's, it's been one of the things that I think has, has, has been one of the pieces of the glue that's held us together. Can I just tell you something? As a, if, if you're married in this room or if you're going to get married, be on mission together. Be on mission together. It's not, about, it's not just about whether I'm happy or not. It's are you serving Jesus together as husband and wife? What is your mission? I'm not saying you have to go into ministry like we did. But I am saying that whatever you do in life, the most important thing ought to be not what your career is, but what your relationship to Jesus is and how you're serving him. And do it together as husband and wife. Can I just tell you, there's a whole bunch of places to serve in our church as husband and wife, including helping out with the children's ministry this summer. Just saying. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Our lives and marriages are to be lived on mission beyond our life. Beyond our life. Sarah, even though she was dead, was still part of God's work. She was the down payment. Her grave was the down payment on God's promises that he would fulfill someday when time came to its full. You know, it's not that long ago, I uh, sat down with, a ch- with some elders from a, from, a, from a church. It was, I don't know, maybe a few years ago now. And they asked me to sit down with them and to talk to them. And, and they were a, a church that was really, really struggling. And um, 
they literally had probably 30 people on a Sunday, you know, very small, small, small church. And, and the congregation, the youth group was like 55 and above, you know. Um, and it was an older congregation. You think I'm exaggerating, but I'm really not. Like it was, it was very, you know, very elderly congregation. And, and they were concerned about their church. They weren't sure if they were going to make it. And so, and so they wanted to talk to me. And so I, I went and I talked to them and sat down with the elders. And we, we began to have this discussion. And, I, and we started to talk about the reality of the situation they were in. I had nothing to gain or lose by the situation. I'm just doing somebody a favor the, the way I saw it. So all the more motivation to just be honest, right? And so I was being pretty honest with them, pretty straightforward, trying to be as gentle as I can, but, but really straightforward about the situation that they find themselves in. And, and after, after a continued pushback on everything that I would ask or say or, or suggest, you know, it was constant pushback, 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 pushback. You know, you're not going to change our music, are you? You're not going to want us to set the chairs up different, are you? You're not going to want paint our walls, are you? Now, I'm not going to do anything, but you know, I was just offering you know, some thoughts on the matter. Finally, I looked at them because you know, they, were, they were concerned about the future of their church, but they didn't really want to change anything, even though they said they, wanted, they were willing to change everything, which is pretty common. And finally, I looked at them and I said, where do you want your church to be? in 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years. And this is the answer that I got back. Well, I don't care. I'm going to be dead. How sad is that? Our life, our ministry, isn't about this life. Our ministry is not about the what people will remember us for in this life. It's about the next one. You see, the church isn't here for me, and it's not here for you. It's here for Jesus. It's part of the kingdom of God. And the ministry that we are part of goes far beyond our lifespan and our lifetime. Our, our, our marriages and our lives ought to be on mission for God that goes beyond this life. Because it's not about this life. It's about eternal life. It is not about whether I'm happy with the music or whether I'm happy with this or whether I'm happy with that. Can I just be honest with you? It's about whether you love Jesus, whether you want to serve him and be part of spreading the gospel to a world that's in desperate need of it. Amen? Our lives and our marriages are to be lived on mission beyond this life. Verse 16 of Genesis chapter 23, it says, Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms. That was the name of the guy who he's buying the field from. And weighed out for him the price he had named, he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. In other words, they do it in front of people so that they, it was, that's how they establish these contracts, right? 400 shekels of silver according to the weight, <coughs> excuse me, current among merchants. So Ephron's field, Mechpelah, near Mamre, I went to seminary to learn how to say that, both the field and the cave in it and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property. In the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city, afterward Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field in Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. In other words, he bought the promise of God by making a down payment on it in that, in that moment. Will your life be a down payment on the promises of God as you move forward? 
Will your marriage be a, a, a down payment on the promise of God? You know, we, we begin to think about what it is to follow Jesus and to follow God. And what we realize is this, that not only are we to, to live on mission, but a life on mission lives for the mission beyond this life. Right? A life on mission lives for the mission that's beyond this life. You know, we like to ask, we, we like to ask the question, well, what are, what are people going to put on my tombstone, right? Can I, can I just be honest? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, some people will go visit your tombstone, maybe. You know, maybe, maybe your kids will or something like that. But can I just be honest that, that the legacy you leave, if it can all fit on a tombstone, isn't much of a legacy. I, I, you shouldn't care what's on your tombstone. I mean, that's the wrong question as you approach the end of life. The question is not what, what pithy saying will they remember me by or what verse will they put on there that, that they think exemplifies my attitude. The question is this. Your legacy lives out in your children and your children's children. Your legacy lives out in how you've impacted the world around you. Your legacy is lived out because people have been impacted by the gospel because of how you lived life and how you handled your marriage and how you loved one another and how you forgave one another and how you encouraged one another and how you always kept your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and how you never ceased, no matter what the circumstances were, to follow him. That's the legacy that you should be seeking after. And it's not, it doesn't fit on a tombstone. It just doesn't. But you know where it does fit? In the lives of those that come after you. As they live out their relationship with Jesus. That's the legacy that we see. When the day comes and you and I go through death's door, will our graves be a sign of the promise to come? Will our lives have been lived in anticipation of Jesus' return and the establishment of his kingdom for eternity future? I pray that like Sarah, our lives will be long on this earth, but I also pray that like Sarah, our deaths will be a sign of what is to come. That there will be that moment when people... 